It is my opinion that we spend way too much money, time, and worry on wedding ceremonies. Most couples spend much more time preparing for the wedding than they do preparing for the marriage. And the price tag for these extravaganzas, and that's what they've become, keeps going up. An article giving some research from two years ago said this, Today engaged couples can expect to hear the ka of the cash register as the average cost of a wedding soars to over $26,000. A total of $125 billion, which is about the size of the gross domestic product of Ireland, will be spent on just over 2 million weddings in that year of 05. Tying the knot used to involve a trip to the altar and a simple reception, but low-cost affairs are increasingly a thing of the past as brides and grooms flex their consumer power and they buck tradition. The average price tag is fast approaching 30000 and represents a 73% increase during the past 15 years, according to the study. <clears throat> now, as an aside, I think it would be a great thing if our church set a precedent of having beautiful but less expensive ceremonies and having a great time at the reception as a church family with the rest of family and then have some of the monies that the parents save, and you know you save, it's like when your wife goes and she says, look how much I saved. And I go, well, if you've saved some, I should have some. Where is it? But anyway, it's saved in that sense. The monies the parents save by not going so lavish can be given to the new couple to start their new life together. That's just my two cents. Anyway, have you ever noticed that everyone is a nervous wreck before the ceremony? So many details. We want everything to be just perfect. So the possibility of any glitch strikes fear in the hearts of the bride and the groom and the mothers and the bridesmaids and the groomsmen. But at least some ministers are pretty laid back about the whole thing. Will I remember my lines? Will everyone get here on time? How does my hair look? Do I look natural? The answer is no. You will never look that way again in your life. When do we step forward to light the candle? Holy cow, did somebody bring the candle? What if the runner gets hung? They used to do runners. Who's supposed to pull the runner? Did somebody tell the caterer where the reception hall is? Will the food be any good? Will there be enough food? Will anybody show up for my wedding? Why am I doing this? Are the kinds of questions right before the ceremony that's been prepared for about a year. In John 2... We read of a wedding where something big goes wrong. And Jesus uses it as a, an occasion for his first miracle. This miracle is the first of seven in the book of John, which John calls signs. The miracle points to something larger. It signifies, it signifies something beyond the actual miracle. And with this first sign, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. He's beginning to pursue the purpose for which he came, culminating in his death and the final, most glorious sign that John records, his resurrection at the end of the book. Jesus is beginning, in John 2, the march toward what he called his time. 
And thus I've titled this message, Signs of His Time. And the setting for this first of these seven signs is a humble wedding of a nameless couple in an obscure city. It's in this setting that Jesus began to reveal his true identity. Notice verse 1 of John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, the typical Hebrew wedding ceremony took place late in the evening following a feast. After the ceremony, the bride and groom were taken to their home in a torchlight procession. They walked underneath a canopy that was held over their heads, and the parade took the most circuitous route possible so the whole community could come out and participate in this joyous occasion. When they arrived home, instead of a honeymoon, they had an open house that lasted for up to a week. It was a great time of celebration. And during a time when people often experienced great difficulty and poverty in life in that day and time, this ceremony and the following week of festivities was a high point in everyone's life. It was a supreme occasion for joy for everyone. It's during the midst of the week of festivity like that, that Mary comes to Jesus and says there's a problem. There's no wine. And that was no minor social embarrassment in that day. If a groom and the groom's family in that day was responsible to provide for the celebration, if a groom failed to provide adequate refreshment at a wedding ceremony, it brought great shame, such that some scholars say the family of the bride could sue for damages. It's a serious situation. And so Mary came to Jesus. And all of that's recorded in verse number 3. Notice verse 3. They have no more wine. And Jesus responds in verse 4, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Now the language here is foreign to us. He simply says woman, but in our culture it carries a different connotation than Jesus meant. The word he used was a bit distant, but still respectful. And then he says something interesting. None of our versions translates it literally because it would make no sense literally. Literally, the phrase says, what to you and to me? That expression is probably best represented by the NIV translation, why do you involve me? It's a bit of a mild rebuke. And so Jesus responds to this with a distant and mild reproach. It seems then that Mary's doing something more than just giving Jesus the raw data, the fact that they've run out of wine. She's making a request of some sort. We get the first solid clue as to what she's asking in verse 4, because Jesus there says, my time has not yet come. He uses that expression six times in this gospel, and every time he uses it, he's referring to the week when he publicly declared himself as Messiah and then ultimately died on the cross. My time. He's saying, my time has not yet come. So put yourself in Mary's shoes, in Mary's sandals for a moment. Here's a woman who's lived with the knowledge of the miracle of the virgin birth for some 30 years. This source of great joy and exuberance was also a source of great pain for Mary. There are hints throughout the Gospels that she lived with a cloud of suspicion due to the circumstances in which the child was conceived. 
Mary knew of the recent work of John the Baptist, about which we looked a couple of weeks ago, and the circumstances involving the initiation of Jesus' public ministry when he was baptized. And so certainly now, she thinks, is the time for him to declare himself openly. It may be that she's asking for a miracle. It may be that she just had something in mind as simple as, listen, there's great social embarrassment here because these people have run out of wine. But what a wonderful diversion it would be for Jesus to declare himself openly. But Jesus mildly and respectfully rebukes her. And Mary responds in faith in verse number five. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And she trusted that he would do something. Verse six says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. These water pots were designated for the ceremonial washing. Mark, in the book of Mark, adds that unless the Jews can constantly engage in the ceremonial washing of their hands, they will not eat. Without the washing, the party would stop. And the verse says that there are six large pots, and notice what it says, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's 120 to 180 gallons. Verse 7 says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim, and then he told them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. Verse 8, they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. A miracle has taken place. Jesus first. We're not told exactly when it took place. We're not told how it took place. We know that Jesus simply willed and it happened. And this miracle raises a question. A question that is not the point of the passage. So it's too bad that all of you have been thinking it as I've been going through all this. But I know you have. It's a question that many of you are asking. Did Jesus really make wine? If so, is it okay for me to drink? I mean, I got a what would Jesus do bracelet. And so we need to take some time to talk about that a bit. We need to understand that in biblical times, it was common for people to drink mildly fermented beverages. And note the word mildly. The reason is that they had little access to pure, clean drinking water. Much of the water was not suitable for drinking, and as a result, it carried bacteria. And so it was common for folks to allow some fermentation to kill germs and have something to drink as a beverage. If you went to the home of the average person in Palestine in the first century, you'd find mildly fermented wine there that the whole family, including the kids, would drink. What you wouldn't find is a wine cellar where they take you to show you their finest cultivated wines. More fermented forms where the wine was especially alive because it was allowed to ferment over time was a luxury that the average person in a subsistence culture simply could not afford. 
Now, to be sure, there were stronger drinks available. And the Bible warns against their use. But the common beverage was a mildly fermented drink called wine, and indeed it was. And because people drank fermented wine in the Bible, I don't believe we can say, as some have done, that you can make a biblical case that total abstinence is morally binding on all Christians in all places at all times. Now stay with me. You say, I can't believe it, Pastor Drinks. What we should do is speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible is silent, and seek to make God-honoring choices in light of what he's told us. What does the Bible say about what the King James Version calls strong drink that's designed to make one intoxicated? Let me give you some of the passages. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. The Bible says wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Micah tells us that a false prophet will prophesy something like this. Plenty of wine and beer. In Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 20, where the command is given regarding how to discipline rebellious children. When the parents bring the children before the council to be punished, one evidence of their rebelliousness is that they are drunkards. Notice what it says. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said that a drunkard is like the sexually immoral or an idolater. Notice what he says. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The Scriptures universally condemn drunkenness and strong drink. The Word of God tells us that there are many consequences to pursuing this kind of lifestyle. Numerous passages describe who it is that is in a stupor, and those who are sick, and those who stagger, and those who are arrogant, and those who are forgetful, and those who are confused and delirious, those who bring upon themselves poverty, all because of strong drink. Probably the most pronounced description is found in Proverbs chapter 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger long over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and it poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights. Your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on the top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? What a description of a drunkard. So although it is a bad argument to say 
That total abstinence is the moral obligation of every Christian in all circumstances at all times. The Bible does take the issue of intoxicating beverages seriously. And so we should too. There's another bad argument that people make on this issue, and they apply it to many other issues as well. Many say, not only can I drink a glass of wine with my meal, but also what I do is nobody else's business. I have a document, a one-page document, that addresses that issue that I'll be happy to pass on to anyone who wants it, but I'm going to read some excerpts from it. The Bible requires that we consider the effect that our choices will have, both on ourselves and on other people. Actions that are not explicitly prohibited may yet be unacceptable because they have the potential to control us and or to negatively affect others. For instance, the Bible tells us to limit our freedom, even in good things, if it might have a harmful effect. Paul, who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians in your New Testament, says that he chose to forego certain activities because of their potential negative effect. And he specifically mentions choices regarding food and drink, whether to take a wife on his ministry travels, and whether to receive pay for his ministry. So notice what he says. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? Is it only I who must work for a living? All of these are good things. But then he goes on to say this. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Though I am free and I belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Paul used his own example of limiting his freedom for the sake of others in order to combat the libertine attitude in the church of Corinth. What do I mean, libertine attitude? I've got liberty. I can do what I want. Everybody else can get lost. It's nobody else's business. And in response to their anything goes attitude, I'm going to show you some verses where he quotes them as saying, everything is permissible. He warned against allowing anything to gain control. And he reminded the readers of the need to exercise their liberty with the good of others in mind. Notice what he says. Everything is permissible for me. And notice that phrase is in quotation marks. You all see that? Because it's quoting, Paul's not saying that, he's quoting what they say. You say everything is permissible for me, then he says, but not everything is beneficial. You say everything is permissible for me, Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then he goes on to say, be careful that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. And then he repeats what he had said earlier. In chapter 10, he repeats what he said in chapter 6. Everything is permissible, you say, but not everything's beneficial. Everything's permissible, you say, but not everything's constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. These biblical principles, friends, of control and of love for others in the exercise of our freedom 
must inform the mature Christian man and woman's choices regarding wine as well as other expressions of appetite and exercise of our liberty. And with all of that, we need to understand that we live in a different time than that of the New Testament. But we have the same obligation of love for others and the effects of our choices on them. Our time is different in that we have access to many, many forms of beverage and refreshment, don't we? Dunkin' Donuts coffee? Our times are also different in that we, unlike them, have an industry pushing and promoting beverages that are harmful. And they've done great harm to families and to our society as a whole. Several years ago, a theological journal listed these details about drinking. At that time, the article said an estimated 10 million problem drinkers or alcoholics were in the U.S. adult population. Of adults who drank, 36% could be classified as problem drinkers. That's over a third. In addition, an estimated over 3 million young people, ages 14 to 17, were problem drinkers. Alcohol-related deaths ran as much as 200,000 per year. That's more than were killed in the Vietnam War on both sides, and that's each year. At that time, and this was many years ago, 45% of high school students said they'd been drunk. Fetal alcohol syndrome at the time was the third greatest cause of birth defects. The list goes on. But at the end of the list, he reveals that taxpayers at that time paid $11 to offset each dollar paid in liquor revenue. Those stats are a bit old, but the issue has not gotten better, only worse. Now, your pastor, for what it's worth, is a teetotaler. I have never had a drop of alcohol, ever. And by God's grace, I never will. But we do not go beyond what the scriptures say. And we give you liberty to choose as your conscience dictates. It's my responsibility to tell you the totality of what God has said in his word. And now we come to verse number 11. Which is really the point of the whole thing. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So what is the significance, significance of the miracles of Jesus? Well, we could say many things about the, what this passage, as I've read it, teaches us in general. From the conversation, for instance, between Mary and Jesus, we see that Jesus is greater than Mary, contrary to what some teach, or at least imply. We see that Mary submitted to Christ, and therefore so should I. We also see that we shouldn't demand that God meet our schedule or desires. He'll do what He wants, when He wants, the way He wants. We see that Jesus... God in the flesh sanctioned the institution of marriage by his presence at the wedding and reception of this unnamed couple. Jesus is not interested in monasticism. He was out among the people. We see that Jesus made the wedding celebration even more enjoyable by providing refreshment. 
And so we learn that God is, is interested in our joy as well as our needs. Did you all hear that? And just as a side, as you read through the Gospels and you look at the story of Jesus, note how many times you find Jesus at a party. He's there. He's full of the joy. In numerous circumstances, God's interested in our joy as well as our needs. And I want to point out in the time remaining, the three, three things I have for you on the back of your program. And I say in the time remaining, honest, I can get done in the time remaining. The miracles of Jesus were indeed signs. A sign was designed to give information that you would not otherwise know, just like a road sign. And it points from the details of the physical miracle to a spiritual reality. And what's the significance of this particular miracle, this sign? Is it found in the mention of the third day in verse 1 or the thirsty crowd or the stone water pots? It's it's none of that. The miracles that were signs showed that Jesus is the messenger from God who was foretold in the first part of your Bible, particularly Deuteronomy chapters 13 and 18. Moses, who wrote that, said there's coming a perfect prophet from God and you'll know him because he'll perform signs. These signs reveal his true identity. They testify to him. And there are seven of these signs that John gives us. They're designed to underscore the truths about the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, who is now come in Jesus. And John laid those truths out for us in the opening chapter. We saw it together. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 Most of you have a heading above those 18 verses in your Bible. And it says the prologue. You all see that? The prologue? It's like an introduction by John who wrote the book. And so John is saying, here's the one I'm writing about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on to tell us that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And all of the things that we have seen about Him in these last several weeks. John gives that introduction. It's not till verse 19 then that we start to see Jesus actually carrying out his ministry. And now in chapter 2, Jesus performs this first miracle. And it's designed to underscore the truths that John laid out in that introduction, that prologue in verses 1 through 18. And so, for instance, these miracles describe him as the giver, or excuse me, the prologue, Describes him as the giver of life. And so John said in those verses, in him was life. And here we have a miracle that takes place where Jesus, just by sheer will, transforms nature. He turns water into wine. That prologue, those first 18 verses said, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so John told us, the one I'm going to introduce to you, and I'm going to show you these signs to prove What I said about him in those 18 verses, he's the creator, he's the master of creation. And this is a sign as to the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the miracles of Jesus were signs pointing to this greater reality. And verse 11 says this. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. And that's the second point. 
The signs reveal the glory of Jesus. The glory means to shine, to radiate, to be brilliant. Chapter 1 and verse 18, the last verse of that introduction, that prologue, tells us that he was full of glory. Glory that men cannot see. And this glory became enrobed in flesh according to verse 14 of chapter 1. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he, eternal God, emptied himself, which at least means in part that he laid aside the shining forth of his glory so that he became a man. The sign pulls back the veil of humanity which hides his glory from our sight and we see the reality of who Jesus is. The last statement of verse 11 says, And his disciples put their faith in him. Here's the third point I have for you in your program. Trust is the only appropriate response to the glorious Jesus. He revealed his glory through this sign specifically for the purpose of engendering faith. The Bible does not advocate blind faith. You have every reason to believe. God has given you every reason to believe. And if we fail to believe, it is because of our willful obstinance, not for lack of evidence. The unapproachable, unknowable, transcendent God has broken into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And he didn't expect us to simply trust the message of Jesus. He proved his testimony through these signs which authenticated his message. He healed the sick. He multiplied the bread. He walked on water. He stilled the waves. He raised the dead. And here he exercised mastery over creation itself. He transformed the molecular structure of water into the molecular structure of wine. And finally, he rose from the tomb to verify that what he had said and what he had done was all because of who he is, the true and living God. And the eyewitnesses, people like John, recorded it for our benefit. And that's why John, with these truths forever impressed upon his memory, wrote in 1 John, this same John who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote three other letters in your New Testament, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. And in 1st John, toward the end of your Bible, here's what he says right at the beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We, says John, proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. There's no blind faith there. We have seen and we testify so that you too will believe. The disciples believed, verse 11 tells us. And therefore, the right response to seeing the glorious person and work of Christ is to believe. And notice that even the first miracle has this purpose of building faith. 
Jesus starts off by pointing out that it's not the hour, and then he performs a miracle anyway. And this miracle was glorious, but it was not the hour of glory. All the miracles build up to what's most important, the most glorious work of Christ, his death and his resurrection, which is the basis of genuine saving faith. The disciples believed. Now get this, the servants, the Bible tells us, saw the same miracle. Do you guys remember that? Jesus didn't make a big deal about this miracle. He didn't say, I want everybody's attention. Watch this. He was not a televangelist. Listen, friends, it's instructive. Jesus did not make a big deal about it. Jesus simply said, do this. The water turned to wine. The disciples knew it. The servants who did what he told them knew it as well. They saw the same miracle, and they saw that same miracle from a closer vantage point than anyone else, but there's no record of their having believed. And here's the principle. Many can see the works of God, and they can read about the works of God and still not believe. The question for you then is, Does this sign serve for you to have the significance it was intended to have? As it shows the glory of Jesus, who he really is. And it bids you to believe in him. We're going to bow in just a moment. And as we do, as we do each week, I with you, who have come to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we're going to bow and we're going to thank him for who he is and what he's done in our lives and the difference that it's made. I encourage you, brother and sister who have done that, to thank Jesus in this moment. But we're also going to offer anyone here who has not believed in Jesus and placed their complete trust in him to alone save them from their sins. That's why his name is Jesus, the Bible tells us. You'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Why Jesus? Because his name means God saves. And you have an opportunity when we pray to pray to him and believe in him. Receive him as your Savior. Bow before him as your Lord. How do you do that? You realize you're a sinner and you recognize who Jesus is, what he did for you, dying on the cross for your sin. You repent of your sin. Repent means a change of mind that results in a change of life. And that's why I say virtually every week, Lord, I want to go your way, not my way. You repent of your sin. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. And you pray a prayer from, in your own words, from your heart to God, along these lines. You will be saved as well. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for allowing us this time to look into the pages of your word. Thank you for the record, the testimony that has been left to us by your servant, John. Thank you, Lord, that that which he has seen and heard and touched along with the others He has recorded for us so that we might believe. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us every reason to believe. I thank you, Lord, that at a point in time you moved upon my heart so that I heard the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus and I responded to it positively. 
I embraced the Savior of that message. And it's made an eternally profound difference in my life. I thank you for so many others here who have done that same thing. And Lord, we ask for that same miracle of new birth. We know you to be the God of miracles. You are the God who created us. You are the God who recreates us. And so I ask you now to give new birth, Lord, to any here who do not know you. May this be the moment, may this be the day of their salvation. I pray, Lord, that there are people right now embracing the Savior of the gospel message. And that you will begin the transformation process from the inside out with them as you have with us. Thank you, Lord, for these and a myriad other blessings. It's in Christ's name we pray.